If you uh, have a Bible with you, could I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 26. It's page 299 in the the Red Pew Bibles. It's been four weeks, actually, since we read and reflected on chapter 25. And if you were here that night, you remember that, that David almost did something really stupid in chapter 25, only to be stopped by, by someone who was prepared to step in and, and help him to see sense before it was too late. Uh, David plus 400 of his men were on their way. They were en route to murder Nabal, the fool, or at least that's what his name meant. Uh, But Abigail, who was Nabal's wife, who later became David's wife, actually took a massive risk, spoke into David's life, and saved him from making a major mistake. And so out of that, if you were here, we, we made a couple of points. The first was that we should thank God for people like that in our lives. People who are prepared to challenge us about a decision that we're taking or a choice that we're making that if, if they don't challenge us could end in disaster. And so we should thank God for people who speak into our lives. But at the same time, we want to pray that God would give us the courage to be that kind of person in someone else's life. That, that if we observe someone who's close to us or maybe not even close to us about to make a major mistake, that we would have the courage to actually draw alongside them and challenge them before it is too late. But that that was a month ago now, and tonight we're picking up the story in chapter 26. But just before we kind of re-engage with with the story, can I ask how many people were here last Sunday morning whenever we looked at that part of the Sermon on the Mount, whenever Jesus teaches us to love our enemies? So if, if you were here last Sunday morning, could you just show for a moment? Okay, probably less than half. Well, for those who were here, this chapter, which has actually lots to consider, as as we'll see in a moment, it actually provides a brilliant example of uh, this instruction, what it actually kind of looks like in practice. Uh, We're going to see this unfold as we go through this chapter. Here is an example of someone loving their enemy. And if you weren't here last Sunday morning, don't worry, but do love your enemy. Okay, let's, uh, let's actually take time this evening, if that's okay, to, to read our way right through this chapter. So as we often do at Windsor, if it's okay, could you please stand for the public reading of God's word? So 1 Samuel 26, verse 1. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding? In the hills of Kaliah, which faces Jeshimon. So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill to Hilkiah, facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the desert. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had laid down. 
Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech and the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zariah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I will go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying round him. Abishai said to David, Today God has given your enemy into your hands. Now, let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head, and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of a hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, who are you who calls to the king? David said, you're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord, the king? Someone came to destroy your lord, the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is, my lord, the king. And he added, Why is the Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? What wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord, the king, listen to his servant's word. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, men have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, Go serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son. Because you considered my life precious today, I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord gave you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son David. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. Grab grab a seat. This... uh, this isn't the first time uh, that, that David spared Saul's life when he had the chance 
and a brilliant chance to take it. In, in chapter 24, two chapters ago, Saul wandered into that cave to relieve himself. And David, who, who happened to be hiding in the back of his cave along with all of his men or a bunch of his men, had a perfect opportunity as, as Saul kind of relieved himself. He had a perfect opportunity to do away with his pursuer. But he chose not to do that. All he chose to do was to cut a piece of Saul's robe from his robe or from his garment. This time round in chapter 26, David finds himself in another similar situation where he has a chance to kill Saul. Only this time, it's not a case of Saul has wandered into a vulnerable place. This time round, David has actively and proactively gone to where Saul is. And he has given himself another great opportunity to kind of put an end to this relentless having to run for his life. And those who have been following this series will know that for many, many chapters now, David has been on the run. But now he's got another chance to stop it once and for all. That he doesn't have to run anymore, to just do away with his pursuer. And as we kind of trace the story, it's just fascinating to me anyway as as to why David doesn't take this opportunity. So let's kind of work our way through it. Turns out that the Ziphites, and again, if you've been following this, you'll know, the Ziphites are kind of perpetual squealers, okay? Because this, this is the second time that it says the Ziphites have gone to Saul and tipped him off as to where David is hiding. I don't want to make a point about that, just that there are those people who just always squeal on you, okay? But that's who these people were. They were just doing it all the time. So they told Saul, Saul, listen, we know where David is hiding. Why don't you go and get him? And uh, two chapters ago, after that, that cave incident and his conversation w- with, with Saul, David, it's, it actually tells us that, that after that, Saul had gone home. But now the Siphites have kind of gone to Saul in his house and, or in his home, in his palace, and said to them, listen, we know where David is heading. Come after him. But even though Saul, two chapters ago, had said, okay, that's enough. I'm going to leave David alone. Although he had all those great intentions, it turns out he's got no self-control. He's, if you like, hell-bent on killing David. And so when he gets another tip off as to where he is, even though he's promised to leave David alone and he's gone home, he decides, listen, I'm going to gather 3,000 of my elite fighters and I'm going to go after him again. And we read in the story that that David actually sees Saul coming. And he observes or discovers where they set up camp, having sent out a kind of scouting mission. And he discovers that, that Saul's actually located, it seems, in the center of the camp, right next to his right-hand man, Abner, who's the army's commander. And then all around him are 3,000 soldiers. And then David makes a suggestion. Okay? Now, I want you to try to put yourself in the shoes of anyone who's listening to David. Because it says David turns to two guys. And up to now, we have no idea who they are. This is their first introduction into the story. But David turns to them and he says, right, who's up for going down into that camp to Saul? Now, I'm really glad 
I wasn't one of those because I am a card most of the time. But when the odds are 3,000 to 2, okay, 3,000 to 2, and someone suggests, tell you what, let's go down into the heart of danger. There's just no chance I'm raising my hand. Well, for some reason, Abishai volunteers. Why? Why would you do that? Well, when I say for some reason, it turns out there is a bit of a reason. Why him? Because as you read on in the David story, you actually discover that this particular individual is a bit of a one-man fighting machine. Because in 2 Samuel 23, it tells us that this guy killed 300 men with a spear. So he is a bit of a fighter. But even so, that was 300. This is 3,000. But he's still up for it. So he puts his hand there and says, David, I'll go with you. And then it becomes, or at least I, I find it almost impossible to kind of get, get my head around this scene because David and Abashai then creep, somehow creep, into the middle of this camp and find Saul. And the key aspect of the key detail that the text tells us is that sitting beside Saul is his spear. And Abashai, who, who clearly has a thing for spears, he sees an, a brilliant opportunity and offers to pin Saul to the dirt with his own spear, not necessarily with Saul's. And then he makes this comment to David. Today, David, God has given your enemy into your hands. And for now, all I want us to do is, is just note Saul's identity. David, this is your enemy. This is your enemy. Here's your chance. How is your self-control we've already made the point that, that Saul appears to have had very little or next to none even though as I said chapter 24 he went home and had resolved to leave David alone the Ziphites tip him, tip him off that David's in the desert again he's got no self-control and so he pursues him but in this part of the story I find David's self-control amazing because here he is with a brilliant chance to do the wrong thing. And the expected thing. Here he is being pressurized into doing the wrong thing. And yet here he is resisting the temptation. At one level, he had every reason to kill Saul at this moment. In fact, as someone has said, he had five reasons. He had the motive. Saul was trying to kill him, so why not, why not fight back? He had the opportunity. Here it was. He had the weapon. There's a spear here. Kill him. He had the encouragement. Someone was saying, listen, David, here's your, here's your enemy. Just do away with him. He also had the track record. I mean, he, this is someone who had used somebody else's own weapon to take off their head. He had killed Goliath. So he has a track record. 
But despite the intensity of this situation, and I, I honestly don't think we can really imagine the intensity of this situation, but despite it, David exercises incredible self-control, which is a segment of the fruit of the Spirit that every Christian is to display in their day-to-day lives as a sign of maturity and growth. So question, how is your self-control in intense situations? How was it that, that David was able to make the right choice then and there? How? Well, in response, or in David's response to Abashai, you, you detect a couple of reasons why he chose self-control. Here they are. The first is trust, and the second is an acute awareness of sin. Trust and an acute awareness of sin. To start with, David trusts God to deal with Saul in his way and in his time. You see, whenever we take matters into our own hands, which would have been the natural thing to David, for David to do here, but whenever we take matters into our own hands, whenever we exact revenge, it reveals, amongst other things, a lack of trust. David knew that he could trust God, that in God's own time, in God's own way, he will deal with Saul, his enemy. It's not David's place to deal with him and that is the challenge for each and every one of us to to trust God to deal with people in his way and according to his timetable but that's hard because so often we want to take matters into our, our own hands so often we want to take revenge so often we want to retaliate and actually in those occasions I believe we need to say okay God Vengeance is yours. It's not my place. Second reason for David's self-control is this acute awareness of sin. Have a look at verse 9. Because David knew that if he had have killed Saul, he would not be guiltless. In other words, he knew it would be the wrong thing to do. And so, when he faces that choice, he chooses a better way. And again, that's the challenge for each and every one of us. There are times whenever doing the wrong thing is so appealing. It's actually so possible. You could even argue that to do the wrong thing in this situation is so understandable, justifiable. And so if we happen to have become apathetic towards sin in our lives, if we consider or if our conscience has been dulled or it isn't quite working properly or working as well as it should, then we can easily justify doing the wrong thing. We can easily make excuses. We can easily ignore the warning signs and not worry about the potential guilt that we'll probably feel if we do the wrong thing. David here is acutely aware of sin. He says, you know, see, if I kill Saul here, I won't be guiltless. I'll be racked with guilt. And so in the midst of a tense and an intense situation, David exercises exemplary self-control as a result of two things. One, he trusts God. Secondly, he has an acute awareness of sin. And I honestly believe there's a real lesson there or there are lessons there for all of us. Do we trust? And are we aware of the potential 
of sin in our lives. But I know what some of you might be thinking, if, if you have been following this, you're thinking, well, hold on a wee minute. A chapter ago, David didn't exactly show a lot of self-control when he set out to murder Nabal, the fool. And if it actually hadn't have been for Abigail, I mean, he, he, would, have, he would have gone through with that. So it seems a bit strange to now talk about David ex- exercising exemplary self-control. But for me, this is why I believe we do need others. That we need other people around us who will save us from ourselves and keep us on the straight and narrow. In chapter 25, David has learnt a lesson about not taking matters into his own hands. He has been pulled back from the brink. He has been saved from making a major mistake. And so a chapter later, whenever he finds himself in a similar situation, where this time he has a really brilliant opportunity to kill someone, he says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to follow through. Lesson has been learnt. And the Christian life, as we all know, is, is, is an adventure. It's a journey. It's a learning process. And there are times that we will get it wrong. And there are times when we will come dangerously close to making major mistakes. But that is why we should thank God for others who are prepared to journey with us, who are prepared to actually draw alongside us and say, stop. Don't go there. Don't do that. You will regret it. So how is your self-control at the moment? David doesn't kill Saul. The story continues. Nor does he allow Saul to be killed. But he does nick his spear and water jug. And he does do a runner. Well, actually, it says he walks out of the camp. And it seems that no one bats an eyelid. Why? Well, verse 12 tells us exactly why. Because the Lord had put everyone into a deep sleep. Now, here's the question. Did David know that beforehand? Did he? I'm not so sure. And actually, there is no evidence from the text to suggest that he did know that. So it was still an incredible act of bravery or rash stupidity, depending on your perspective. So then it says David creates a bit of distance between him and Saul's camp. And he climbs a hill, but he doesn't go too far because he goes far enough to still be able to be heard when he shouts. And again, if you were here back in chapter 24, when we looked at this, a similar thing happened after the cave incident. But David climbs a hill and he calls out to the camp. Now they are awakened. And he actually speaks initially to Abner, Saul's right-hand man. And he challenges Abner. And there is a sense, or there is more than a hint of sarcasm in what he says. Because he questions Abner's ability to do what he's supposed to do. He actually says, you were meant to guard Saul. You were lying right next to him. Why didn't you do it? And to prove that you didn't do it, look what I've got. Saul's spear, Saul's water jug. Some bodyguard you are. Now, we don't actually hear Abner's response. 
You can only imagine his horror and his embarrassment at finding them gone. But Saul then intervenes. He speaks up because he's heard the voice calling from the hill. And he says, is that your voice, David, my son? Saul has struggled for a very long time to call David by name. Never mind address him as my son. He he did do it back in in chapter 24. But as we've highlighted, it it clearly meant very little. Because even though he did call David his son then and went back home, here he is back with 3,000 elite fighters to kill him. Now in chapter 24, whenever Saul calls David his son, David replies, my father, here He's not so quick to be on such friendly terms. And so he addresses Saul, yes it is, my Lord and King, which is a formal uh, response. And that sense of formality actually continues throughout the ensuing conversation, possibly confirming to us that the close relationship, as far as David is concerned, the close relationship that once existed between him and Saul is now gone. It's over. As a result of Saul's relentless pursuit of him. And so what David does here at this moment in time is he kind of affirms his innocence. And he claims to Saul, listen, Saul, I am no more a threat to you than a flea. That's what the text tells us. He wonders and he questions. He says, why are you so intent on killing me? Is God inciting you to do this? Or are there other people pulling your strings? And stoking the hatred towards me. What is it? What have I done wrong? Why are you so intent on coming after me? And I'm sure there there are some people here. and, And you can kind of relate to this. Because no matter what you say or what you do in certain situations. And with certain people. They just seem to always get back at you and come after you. And, and that's how David's feeling here. He just does not, he's done nothing wrong. And yet, Saul won't let up. And Saul doesn't explain why he's coming after him here. But then he does break into what sounds like a genuine admission of guilt. And in verse 21, have a look at it. He, he confesses his sin. He says, I have sinned. And he invites David to come back into his life. And he actually admits that that he has been a fool. That he has done something terribly wrong. Now in some ways what you would expect to happen at this point is, okay, Saul has confessed his sin. Saul has invited David back into relationship with him. He's admitted he's been foolish. He's admitted he's done wrong, but that's not what happens. David doesn't return to Saul. Instead, what David does is, he says, no, I'm not coming back, Saul. Tell you what, you send one of your young men to come and get the spear. And here's what he says after that. Verses 23, 24. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord gave you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. You see, as far as David was concerned, trust was gone. 
He could no longer trust Saul. But what, God, what David does trust in is the fact that God rewards everyone for righteousness and faithfulness, not for wrongdoing and betrayal. God rewards everyone for righteousness and faithfulness, not for wrongdoing and betrayal. And so what David does is, here he, he affirms the value of Saul's life. It's really it's a key bit here. As surely as I valued your life today, he affirms Saul's value as a person. And again, when it comes to those who oppose us, when it comes to someone who, who gives you a hard time for an unknown reason, this, I believe, is a critical mindset. Don't hate them. Don't seek revenge. Here's what actually loving them looks like in practice. You affirm their value as people. As human beings who have been made in the image of God. That's what David does here. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't look to Saul to affirm his value back again. Instead, what David does is he looks to God. Look at verse 24. Because what David doesn't say is, as surely as I valued your life today, so may you value mine. What he actually says is, as surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. And so what David does in this moment is he looks to God for personal affirmation and value. And he looks to God for help. And then what we read is that, that Saul blesses David and they separate. Saul blesses David and then they separate. And for those who know what happens next, this is actually the last time they ever see each other. It's the last time. And so Saul's last words to David are words of blessing. So there is a wee bit of a hint of hope. But what I do believe, and this is, I'm, I'm done here at this point, but what I do believe is that there is a kind of lesson here for those who seek to do right whenever a relationship breaks down. Whenever a relationship disintegrates. Whether that's in business, or in church, or in politics, or in family. David and Saul's relationship is never going to be the same again. Why? Trust is gone. Trust is gone. And so a parting of the ways is inevitable. But in parting, and here's the bit, in parting, they commit themselves not to harm one another. And I reckon that's worth remembering in certain situations. You see, Jesus has taught us to love our enemies. Jesus has taught us to pray for those who persecute us. David is someone who seems to have lived that out. How did he live that out? He lived it out by exercising self-control even when he was under pressure to retaliate. He did it by learning to value his enemy. To value them as a human being. He did it by looking to God for his personal worth. Not looking to the other person to give him worth. But by looking to God to give him his personal worth and help. 
And he then did it by making a decision. Okay, trust is gone. We separate. We walk away. But we resolve not to harm one another from here on in. You see, love is more than an emotional feeling. Love is a choice. It's an act of the will. And David made that choice and retained his integrity because clearly, as we're increasingly discovering, David was a man after God's own heart. Let's pray.